The following podcast contains explicit language, by which we mean potty talk. It's Thursday, May 2nd, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Seth Moulton is in! Michael Bennett is in! Wait, who are these guys? Into what? Oh yeah, they went to the presidential race. Michael Bennett is a senator from Colorado, previously known for being the kind of smart, respected senator who wouldn't do something stupid. No more. He, like 20 of his fellow Democrats, saw that Marion Williamson got an actual CNN town hall and said, what? How about me? I'm an actual member of Congress or a senator or in some cases, a mayor of a middling city, but still an elected official. I need one of those. You see, CNN thought they were doing a good thing in terms of civics and informing the public, but what they created is what the economists would call a moral hazard. Now, you realize what this means, that a top advisor to a presidential campaign is outside the top 20 Democratic political advisors. After, I've interviewed a bunch of political advisors, after like three or four, there is a huge drop-off. The twin, Someone's running for president with the 21st best political advisor. And this also means that a bunch of people are running for Senate with, I don't know, the 38th best political advisor. I mean, hopefully a really great advisor of, say, the Inslee campaign will read the writing on the wall and peel off and try to do the grunt work of, you know, making a Democrat win in Texas or something of really minor insignificance like that. Yeah, I said Inslee. You heard right. It is hard to keep all these guys straight. Got a little uh, little ditty to try to help you. Michael Bennett, Joe Biden, Cory Booker, John Delaney, Tulsi Gabbard, Wayne Messam, Kirsten Gillibrand, Hickenlooper, Klobuchar, Seth Moulton, won't get far, Eric Swalwell, Liz Warren, Kamala Harris, Jay Inslee, Beto too, Bernie Sanders, Oprah's guru, Mike Ravel, I'm in hell, did I say Hickenlooper yet? Hickenlooper, Hickenlooper, I'm stuck inside a Hickenlooper, Tim Ryan, Andrew Yang, what else do I have to say? You know... The more voices, the better. That's what they tell you. Yeah. Have you ever coached a youth soccer team, one that didn't allow cuts? So you got 22 players all chasing the ball at once, 44 parents screaming, why isn't my kid the center halfback? Elizabeth Warren's backer is telling you, you know, Liz drew up some plays and they're really much better than yours. And then complaining that Buttigieg is just getting by on improving and fancy footwork. You trudge home after a day of practice. Wait, who's that? Tim Ryan? Wait. Isn't your, isn't your mom or dad coming to give you a ride home? What? She said the coach could take you home? Oh, yeah, sure, whatever. Everyone gets a participation trophy. Who brought the oranges? No one. Great. Awesome. What a nightmare. Absolute nightmare. The first debate, everyone will be allotted one haiku and then closing statements. Fantastic. Guys, you're really doing a great job. I say the first prominent Democrat to announce they're not running wins. And it's Oprah. Once more, Oprah stands apart. On the show today, I spiel about a man who was compared to a chicken, but should have been compared to an eel or something else slippery and with at least a thousand vertebrae in their spines. Flexible. But first, perhaps you've been watching this guy, James Holzhauer, win on Jeopardy, destroying all comers. Yes, except one. Adam Levin came within $18 of Holzhauer. And Levin joins me next to talk about how to almost topple a juggernaut.
Hey, listener, you may have heard via your earbuds, car stereo, smart speaker, or immersive shower sound system that podcasts are the future. We at Slate think so, too, which is why we are hosting Slate Day in New York City on Saturday, June 8th. And it won't just be stuffy panels. Oh, but it'll be them, too. The day starts with a performance by Ms. Cracker of RuPaul's Drag Race fame. We've got pop culture trivia where you can join Slate's own writers. A play date for kids organized by our parenting podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting and You Know Hit Parade, that podcast about the biggest hits in pop and music. They are going to have a dance party. Of course, we will have panels too, including mine, titled The Art of Podcasting with Mike Pesca. I'll be asking questions to the people who usually ask questions in this, the podcast industry. I can't wait for it. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets. See you Saturday, June 8th. If you've been watching James Holzhauer on Jeopardy, you know that this guy is, I don't know, Galactus devouring worlds, Sherman marching to the sea, seemingly unstoppable. But he had a competitor who was at least worthy. And we, no, we didn't get Holzhauer, come on. But we got the guy who almost got Holzhauer. It's like this. If I was doing an interview about the Battle of Thermopylae, would you really want to hear from Xerxes? No, you'd want to hear from Leonidas. So I have Leonidas to Holzhauer's Xerxes, Adam Levin, who won over $51,000, although it gets bumped down to 2000 by Jeopardy rules, and lost to Holzhauer by $18. But still, I want to talk to Adam about the entire experience. Thanks for joining me, Adam. My pleasure, Mike. So I don't know if you heard, but uh, on NPR, I did criticize your betting strategy at the end. And I will say that it wasn't optimal. You left yourself exposed to the third place contestant. But I want to admit to you while we were together, it was it was ballsy. It was, I think, the way to go to etch your name in the history books. If you had to do it again, would you have bet differently? No, definitely not. Um, I, I like to think of it as I was, I was betting on myself. I, I, I've been watching along and playing along for the last however many years and, and really closely the last however many weeks before my appearance. And uh, I'd been doing pretty well on Final Jeopardies. So um, I like to think of it as I was, I was betting on myself. And do I want to be a guy who wagers uh, 11000 or do I want to be a guy who wagers more than 20000 And uh, I decided I wanted to be the second guy. Now, you are a sports information director. So was it you who came up with the statistic or someone working at Jeopardy that had your uh, dollar value stood up? And we should note that only the winner gets to keep his money. Second place gets $2,000 flat. Third place gets $1,000 flat. But if you had been allowed to keep your money, you'd be what? In the top 20 of all time winners? Yeah, that's at the time it was 21st. I'm sure it's going to probably um, fall pretty rapidly as long as James is still around. Um, but I like to, I think he may have even pointed this out on, on a social media platform that only eight people had a final total higher than mine. Right, right. So, so seven non-James Holzhauer people. Correct. <laughs> so, look, obviously you want the money. Who doesn't want the money? But how much of a consolation is having the story? All the stuff we talked about. I, I mean, it's been great fun. You know, I, I, obviously it's something I'm going to talk about for the rest of my life. Um, and, it, and, and, that, and it would be whether I had won, lost, whatever. Uh, being on Jeopardy is something you're going to talk about for the rest of your life. 
And I, I assume you're rooting for Holzhauer because the better he does and the more he obliterates people, the more impressive your accomplishment is. Yeah, I, I, I've been saying um, this week I, I wouldn't mind finding out that one of the people that was that was at the tapings that I was managed to get him um, instead of me because I had a chance to to sit with all of them in the shuttle on the way to to the studio and and sit with them in the green room um, and so I like them all and if mm-hmm. if any one of them were to get James um, I would certainly be happy for them but uh, but once he gets past them um, as far as I'm concerned he can keep on doing what he's doing and 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 like you said, make me look that much better. Let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of it. How many people are in your group of uh, potential contestants? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a place that I think maybe even gave me a little bit of an advantage when I, when I stepped out there on the stage for the first time. They bring in 12 people for the 10 challenger slots. So there's five games a day over the course of two days, a Tuesday and a Wednesday. And there's 12 challengers per day. That's for two reasons. One, if something goes haywire, somebody gets lost traveling or gets sick during the day and they can't make it, um, they have a little bit of room. I think there's also a bit of uh, a randomness factor. You know, there's there's lawyers around making sure that everything is as above board and, and, um, you know, that, that nobody is getting anything ahead of time. Yeah, I, I when I was on Jeopardy, that was the most surprising thing. It was the most legally mediated experience of my life. You know, I've never been to a house closing, but my God, they assign you lawyers, they talk about the lawyers, they go through what to ha- how to challenge it in case you thought you got a question wrong. All I guess because of the game show scandals, but this is a heavily heavily regulated thing. Yeah, yeah, it was surprising. I happened to be one of the the two leftovers at the end of the Tuesday taping, so mm-hmm. I. I had a chance to watch James play five times before I stepped in against him. Right. Um, and I, I think, you know, compared to to Jasmine, who was the third player on the stage with us, who would not have seen him in advance, who would be – who was experiencing it for the first time, I think I, I definitely had an advantage. Certainly that being said, I thought, you know, she did great as well for yeah. for someone who – <laughs> to see it cold and to and to get as many as she did and, and and finish where she did was was pretty impressive too. So you literally watched him play what games thirteen through seventeen, his games thirteen through seventeen? Correct. Because of that, you're you've got to be a little psyched out, but what did you tell yourself as you went to sleep that night knowing that you were <laughs> playing this guy? I mean, you must have told yourself there is months between being picked and being on Jeopardy and the mind can reel, but now you're focused and you're playing this guy. You know, what do you do? You work in sports information, you maybe have some experience psychologically with psyching yourself up or at least not getting psyched out. What was your preparation? I, I, I'm trying to remember. I don't think I had a great night's sleep, to mm-hmm. be honest, but yeah. not because of James. I think it was just I was sleeping in a strange bed in a, you know, three time zones away, and I was, you know, just sort of off schedule a little bit. But um, man, I, I've been had been looking forward to this and doing it, and was so excited. Um, it it might have just been the adrenaline rush of the whole thing. The idea of going against James, I, I'm not going to say I wasn't nervous at all, but I wasn't nervous because I was playing against James. I was nervous because I was being on Jeopardy and, and you know, 
finally yeah. living a, a lifelong dream, I suppose. So obviously, you know, the buzzer part of his of it is hard. It's essential. Um, mm-hmm. Beforehand, I remember when I went on, I did a little research. I found out that the index finger is quicker than the thumb. I used that method, but I didn't have time to practice with the show live because I was the first one in that batch of people. As you mm-hmm. were watching it, did you try to time it and try to practice it? How do you strategize the buzzer? Yeah, I mean, I certainly was always sort of moving my thumb, you know, when it was time to go. Um, I don't know if you did this when you were practicing leading up to being out there, but where, whereas I used to just lounge on my couch and hang out and maybe play catch with my son uh, while I was watching, um, now it's, it's quiet time and, and I stood up a few feet from the TV and, yeah. and I, I found a, a, a purple pen that was comically large and, but happened <laughs> to be the same size as the, um, as the signaling device. So, you know, if that was helping build up some muscle memory for when I did it, when I was actually up there, then, then, then that worked. So I, like I said, I don't know if that's something that you, that you tried or not. Well, I, back when I was doing it, the website comicallylargepens.com didn't exist. So I was at a disadvantage. I, I got it from, from a dentist's office. So <laughs> they might've known about it, I guess. Was it tooth shaped? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't even know where the button on that would be, but <laughs> yeah. Did his strategy of hunting and pecking for clues and starting at the bottom, which is an unknown, Arthur Chow did it and, and Chuck Forrest, I yeah. guess, invented it. I think, I think James yeah. d- did it a little differently though, right? He, he sort of, he sweeps that bottom row to make sure he's got some, some cash built up for when mm-hmm. he does have the daily double. Yeah. Did it influence your strategy? Did you start doing it that way? I, I, I think I probably did. And, and certainly I was, I was a little bit more aggressive and random than I would have been, like I said, against a, a top-down player. I don't think I would have pressed the play the way that James did to set the pace. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was happy to, to do my best to, to sit back and, and keep up with him. Uh, at one point, Alex said, we've got a game. And you could tell sure. he was excited. Did you get excited? <laughs> I mean, that was after I hit the daily double. So you're darn right. I I got excited. I distinctly remember letting out a, you know, a deep breath. And again, I'm sure that's on the TV and felt my, my heart race and my, my pulse pound. And again, I'd have to go back and look and see, I think there were about 10 clues left Mm -hmm. how I did after that. But, um, yeah, that was clue number 20 of the round. So yeah, right. Exactly. So there would have been 10 clues left. I think James got the next one after that, but no, you got the next one after that, and it was judge and jury, which oh, is appropriate that was the next one after that. You are See, you are the sports information director for the Brandeis judges. Yeah, exactly, and and again, that was another place where my my poker face was not so great. I was <laughs> I was elated to get to get in on that one, mm. and especially he'd already gotten the two baseball questions. So if <sighs> I hadn't gotten judge and jury, I might not have been able to return to campus. Um, <laughs> so for final Jeopardy. The clue hits. The oldest of these business booster groups formed in Marseille in 1599 uses de instead of of in the name. 30 seconds. Good luck, players. Do you know it right away? Um, it was the first thing that jumped into my mind, mm-hmm. but not at 100%. Mm-hmm. So let's say at 80 85%. So mm-hmm. I took a couple minutes to think, a couple, not minutes, obviously, but a couple seconds to think, are there any other possibilities here? But the idea of French and the only difference being the word de and of, and, you know, I, I took French in college. So knowing that the words chamber and commerce are, um, 
you know, basically the same in the two languages in French and English. I think I thought that through relatively quickly and, and decided that was, that was the right answer. And I think I put the dot on my question mark just as the uh, the timpani hit. Oh, wow. No, I, I wouldn't even think that knowing French would help. And I hadn't even considered if chamber and commerce were the same. So that's a little next level. The one question I had, it's, it's probably too quick to process, but you want, because you're behind and have to make up ground, you wanted final jeopardy that you know, but then you also need one that James doesn't know because you got to make up uh, ground on him who's leading going in. Um, it's probably not during the answering of the question or questioning of the answer that you can think of this. But as Alex starts going through the clues, are you worrying this wasn't hard enough to stomp him? I don't. That's that's a good question. I, their thought process was definitely going through my mind probably after it was done. Yeah. And so, okay, Jasmine. Um, is her answers revealed and it's incorrect? And I'm thinking, oh, there is a possible incorrect answer yeah. out there. Ah. Um, and from a good player, by the way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but the fact of the matter is I didn't really have any other incorrect answers in my head. Yeah. So he would either have to have no clue whatsoever or he would get it right. I couldn't think of an incorrect but plausible answer. So, you know, basically Alex said, and James, here's your answer. You're correct. I guess I wasn't too surprised to hear that. Yeah. And then, of course, I don't know if you've seen on uh, Facebook. I don't remember if it was that night or since then. Apparently, just recently, his brother was named, had been named to the, the Naperville, Illinois <laughs> Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> what if this all becomes like a usual suspects thing and we go back and every single final Jeopardy he got directly connects to yeah. his life and then we start researching it? Uh, yeah. You know, or some, someone else pointed out that uh, Ken Jennings' toughest game in, in the early stretch was also in his 18th game. Yeah. So clearly we're just, we're living in a simulation and I don't take credit for that. Somebody else on Reddit said that. So the 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 other thing is, it was a business question, and Ken Jennings lost on a question about white collar employees, um, where he said, H, "I think it was H and R Block." Yeah, Ken Jennings lost on a business and industry question exactly, right. and he said FedEx, and the winner said H and R Block. Right. Yeah, man, you could have been the Nancy Zerg of 2019. I, I would have been honored. <laughs> uh, did you have any interactions with Holzhauer uh, during or before? I did. Uh, we had lunch with him. They take you to lunch on the on the Sony lot. Apparently, a, a couple weeks ago, they had seen uh, Tom Holland eating lunch. So I missed out seeing on having lunch with Spider Man too. <laughs> but um, you know, ask him some questions. He was he was coy about any actual. I think gameplay strategy. Somebody asked him, how are you so fast on the buzzer? Is it X or Y? And he said a little bit of both. Yeah. More importantly, so my, my eight-year-old son was in the audience. He sat through the whole day Tuesday, amazingly enough, for an eight-year-old. So after the game, um, when we're all, we're getting the mics removed and signing our the final waivers, saying this is how much money you're going to get. While I was doing that, um, he went into the audience and, and gave my son a, a high five and and said, you should be really proud of your dad. So... You know, that's that's a really meaningful thing for me. That's really nice. And how long ago were these taped? Uh, February 26th and 27th. So what's the interregnum been like for you? Um, it's not been easy. <laughs> you know, First of all, America, where... you knew that this guy was great, and I guess you suspected he was going to be a phenomenon, but you couldn't tell anyone. Exactly right. So, you know, 
it's sort of the countdown. So, you know, finished taping. And so now it's the countdown to when is he on the air? Um, and then, you know, it's just people asking in, in that meantime is people asking, oh, when does it air? When does it air? Meaning my show. And so, yeah, give him the date. Um, and then he gets on the show and I think he broke the record in the second game. It was yeah. the first time he broke the 77,000 mark. So then that happens and people say, hey, did you see this guy break the record the other night? I was like, oh, yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> he was pretty good. And yeah. then as he's getting closer and closer, people are starting to realize that he's getting closer and closer to my air date. And I say, did you play him? Did you play him? I was like, he's, he's got to win three more games. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, obviously I knew that he was that he was doing something that nobody had ever seen before and then still having to play like, yeah, play play dumb and say he's a he's a great player and uh you know, we'll have to see what happens. Yeah. I oh. definitely felt like a time traveler for for a few months. It's so cool. All right, let me ask you one final question. Sure. All right. Of the four people ever to win an Oscar for acting and have a number one pop single, name two of them. Um, that was my final Jeopardy question. Oh, right. That's why I'm asking I think, you. I think I do. So <laughs> I think um, Barbara Streisand mm -hmm. uh, and Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Okay. And, I'm legit. And, I check out. Yeah. And, and Bing Crosby and J Jamie Foxx. Oh, Jamie Foxx. Sure. Yeah. Adam Levin, a sports information director from Ashland, Massachusetts, and, as we know now, a Jeopardy! silver medalist. Great talking to you, Adam. Thank you, Mike. Great talking to you, too. And now the spiel. Attorney General Bob Barr eschewed the House Judiciary Committee today, and as Barr eschewed, Steve Cohen chewed. The Tennessee Democrat illustrated the attorney general's absence by displaying a ceramic chicken and eating KFC from the dais of the committee room. This kind of stunt was called out in the Senate by Tom Tillis, Republican of North Carolina. What this really boils down to is theater. Some of it almost to the level of comedy. And let me give you an example of what I mean. There was a House hearing today, and I'm about to put up a picture that actually was on C-SPAN, that actually occurred in a House hearing. You tell me whether or not the chair of that committee is actually serious about this subject when you've got a guy eating fried chicken in place of where they wanted Attorney General Barr to be. This guy didn't even have good enough sense to have Bojangles chicken. And they've got the chair and others letting him have that kind of theater in a House committee room. Really? I mean, can you honestly say you're serious about this? Or is this like a circus and a political tool because you lost? Hey, listen, Republican Senator Mike Lee had pictures of Aquaman and Ronald Reagan riding a tauntaun to illustrate his stance on global warming. So, you know, what's sauce for the goose is tangy, crunchy, delicious sauce for the gander. Mmm, gander. Other conservatives seized on the chicken stunt as being of equal importance to the attorney general's ignoring his obligation toward accountability. This was Commentary Magazine's Christine Rosen. I think he, first of all, you can't call someone a chicken who spent five or six hours being grilled by the Senate. Yes, yes, that's exactly what happens to chickens. He also got roasted by Senators Harris, Leahy, Klobuchar, and White House. So he's all kinds of chicken. And you know what? I am done deferring on matters linguistic to Barr and his defenders. 
Uh, I think spying is a good English word that, in fact, doesn't have synonyms. Sure, except for espionage, surveillance, surveying, bugging, miking, wiretapping. Stop. Just stop. You know, I've been more disturbed by the handling of the Mueller report, post-Mueller report, than about anything I learned in the run-up to the Mueller report, than in anything I learned about the obstruction that Trump was engaged in in plain view. Because when we read the report itself and we learned there were no charges, that seemed pretty bad. But everything that's happened since seems a little worse. The reason is that all along there was the hint, or maybe it was the hope, that adults would steer this out-of-control La Da Vesta away from the throng of holiday shoppers who were crowding the sidewalks. I thought at some point that some people with, with authority in the Republican Party would say, well, this is pretty clear, and this all, all of this, it's not worth it. It can't go on. But no, Bill Barr's awful, shameful, farcical performance is being treated as, yeah, it's fine, no problem. No Republican has said, well, that was terrible. We, we have to prevent that sort of thing from happening again. And if dopey Steve Cohen gives them an inch of room, oh, they'll spend all that time saying shame, shame, tisk tisk, and ignoring the miles of abuse on substantive things that the administration has committed. So how much are taxes and judges worth? I thought, yeah, I thought it was a lot. I understand that's the agenda. I didn't think it was this much. What else are the Republicans getting out of the Trump administration besides taxes and judges and a little bit of owning the libs? I mean, the taxes, they're not going down any further. So that's done. And the judges will keep on coming. I understand that. Listen, I do understand that we often believe in larger causes and you have to keep your eyes on the goal. And sometimes you might have to break a rule or step on the hem of your own conscience in deference to that higher goal, it's not even always unethical. For some people, protecting their family, that's the greater good. And they do a lot to protect their family. They would lie. They would break a law if it meant keeping your kids safe. For others, something like belief that their God is the true God, that's the greater good. And they make a lot of logical leaps to get to that conclusion. But if your greater good is judges and taxes and maybe owning the libs a little, the cost is enormous. No, am I wrong? You're a Republican senator, a Republican member of Congress. You're literally giving up the power of your institution. For what? Taxes that happened and judges that, you know, are going to come. You're saying, yeah, let the executive branch ignore subpoenas. Let the attorney general, who should be the country's attorney general, run interference for the president. Yeah, we know the granular distinction uh, between being fired and saying he should go. Of course, we know that's a joke, but we'll never say anything about it. We know it's risible for the attorney general to say, I don't know what Mueller was thinking when he sent a letter telling you exactly he was thinking, but we'll let it go. And if the attorney general doesn't want to show up and testify to our branch of government, that's fine. We'll run interference for him, he'll run interference for Trump, and we will get that golden chalice of judges and lower taxes. And we'll also get some policies that we as Republicans can't stand at all. Tariffs, trade, Russia, North Korea policy. We'll get a whole raft of them. There's the expression that I'm sure you know, the ends justify the means. It's seen as an absolute, but 
I think as human beings, don't we have to ask how much and how often? If you have to lie or ignore or say things you don't believe in or bite your tongue when horrible things happen, if you have to do that a third of the time, you know, maybe the ends justify the means. If you do that half the time, maybe you start questioning it. What are we at now? 70, 80, 90% of the time, the means being some sort of ethical compromise? Maybe it's time to say, not just, you know, I don't know if the ends are worth it, but time to ask, you know, maybe there's something about these ends that are requiring such sullied and scurrilous means. Maybe, but of course, I'll give you this. You got the judges and you got the taxes and you got an executive branch who is wholly uninterested in engaging with Congress. Remind me again, who's the chicken? That's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produce the gist. They'll take potent potables for 200. Oh, that's not a category in Jeopardy. That's a description of their bar bill. T.J. Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She doesn't like the Jeopardy category world history because it just means everything that happened anywhere before now. The gist. We were thinking of uh, doing all the candidates to It's the End of the World as We Know It instead of We Didn't Start the Fire, but Dianne Feinstein isn't running and we needed her in the Leonard Bernstein part. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.